so I found this chapter very helpful and I think applicable to the sermon that was preached Sunday and especially with regard to the statements that I made about how to properly relate to Babylon or to relate to the world system. Uh, this book, uh, it's a, the book I'm holding in my hand, is actually two books put into one and published by Tentmaker Publications. But the two books are first Glimpses of the Inner Life of Our Lord by William Blakey. And the second one is The Emotions of Jesus by Robert Law. And this chapter, this is in the second book, which would be The Emotions of Jesus by Robert Law. The second chapter is entitled The Geniality of Jesus. And the text that's at the head of the chapter is from Matthew chapter 11, verse 18. John came neither eating nor drinking. And there's an ellipsis, dot, dot, dot. And then below it, the Son of Man came eating and drinking. So there's clearly a, a connection that is uh, attempting to be made between these two men. John came neither eating nor drinking. The Son of Man came eating and drinking. He makes a reference first to the chapter that began this book, which was on the joy of Jesus. We have seen what was the basal joy of Jesus, that the being, the character, the universal presence, activity, and sovereignty of the Father in heaven. These were the everlasting arms underneath all existence, the widest, but also the most immediate environment of his own life and of all life. And within this infinite joy, all joys and sorrows that arise from the lesser environments were ensphered. And to follow the logical order, we ought to consider in the first place the emotions awakened in Jesus by the widest and most external of these, nature, capital N, nature. But, leaving this subject for another occasion, let us endeavor to study the emotions excited by his human environment, and first, by those in it that are naturally gladsome. It so happens that the contrast between him and John the Baptist regarding this very matter was one of the things that arrested the attention of their contemporaries. John impressed the popular imagination by his rigid asceticism. His abode, his food, and raiment were those of the desert, telling of one by whom the world and its delights and all the joys of common life had been forsworn. But Jesus, they said, came eating and drinking. He was no weird prophet coming forth from the wilderness in hermit's garb, but a homely man, affable, approachable, sociable in his manner of life, kindly with his kind. He had all John's scorching indignation against the evils of society and the hypocrisies of conventional religion, but he had what John had not, geniality. There is a type of piety 
in which we do not expect to find this. As, for example, St. Teresa naively discloses when she writes of Peter of Alcantara, a saint and ecclesiastic famous in her day, that, quote, with all his sanctity, he was kind. She had not expected to find so much genial humanity in so eminently pious a person. And plainly, it would have been equally unexpected in John the Baptist. And to those who took their idea of religious intensity from John, it was a surprise to find it in Jesus. He comes eating and drinking, looking with lively, unaffected sympathy upon the pursuits and joys of common life, and himself participating in them so far as his unique calling allowed. We may say indeed that among the great religious teachers and leaders, a marked feature is the uniqueness of Jesus and his geniality. Geniality. He wept with them that wept. No less did he rejoice with them that rejoiced. Now, I thought this was very interesting, this contrast that's being made between John and Jesus. Because we very often, I think, just like the Pharisees of John's day, assume that true piety, true holiness, is very often or almost exclusively found in the strangeness of a John the Baptist. We, we meet somebody who is clearly strange, uh, socially awkward, hard to get along with, hard to deal with, unfit for most human relationships, and we assume that person is the holy person. And then we meet someone else who isn't like that, who maybe gets along with pretty much everybody, is liked by people, is jovial, happy, by all outward observations, a fairly normal human being. Of course, I'm not talking about with their relationship to sin or anything like that, but just a, a fairly normal and socially appropriate person. And we assume that there must be something lacking in their in their holiness. Because how could a, a holy person really get along with this world or the present age like that? Again, the irony is that Christ was clearly holier than John. And so we have to be careful in making these outward observations or assumptions that to be holy means uh, absolute disconnection and disassociation with everything uh, in, in our culture or society or human beings. That to be holy means that we're socially awkward, uh, socially unacceptable, and really can only be endured in small amounts by the average populace of our society. That wasn't true of Christ. So he's drawn this, uh, this comparison. John came neither eating nor drinking. The Son of Man came eating and drinking. 
both of them preached the same gospel. Christ was clearly the superior of the two. And yet very often we assume that, that only one was is the acceptable manner of life. Uh, who are we who are we trying to be like? Are, in our sanctification, are we being conformed into the image of John the Baptist or are we being conformed to the image of Jesus Christ? That's the question. And he goes on to describe this this character. Uh, the first point of the book is the gospel portrait. And then the second is its meaning for us. So he, he just, it's not very long, but he just describes and gives us sort of a glimpse into the Christ of the Gospels, which I think is incredibly succinct and yet paints this picture. As I read this, I could not help but just be, again, utterly astonished and really uh, captivated by this, this Christ this one who is our Lord. Where upon the whole can be found a fairer, more genial view of our natural human life than in the Gospels? Take Christ's pictures of family life. How lofty is his valuation of everyday human fatherhood, which, imperfect as it is, seeks for its children the best it knows and gives the best it can. How he finds his whole gospel in that single figure, the Father, whose joy at the recovery of his ungrateful, self-willed boy sweeps utterly away like an obliterating flood all resentful feelings and painful memories. How he bids men look first into their own hearts that they may find God. And how sympathetic Jesus is with the joys of wedded love. It is indeed startling to find that the scene on which he first manifested forth his glory was a rustic wedding, and that his first miracle was wrought to remedy no grave disaster, healed no broken heart, nor met any tragic extremity at all, but was an act of simple kindness done merely to secure that the humble marriage feast of two villagers should go brightly on with no shadow of poverty or embarrassment falling upon it. Christ was concerned that these that this couple would not suffer the embarrassment of a depleted source of wine, and so he he concerned himself at this party. Think of the joy of Jesus in children. How he watched the little folk at their play. You cannot imagine John the Baptist doing that. In the open spaces of the marketplace. And how he enjoyed the humors of it. With gentle smile marking the changing moods. The very human perversities and little fits of sulks. Which, with which they conducted the affairs of their mimic world as real to them as the anxious buying and selling of their elders. He's saying, just, just imagine Jesus. We know that he, he used this picture of the children in the marketplace. To, to take that picture, the man Jesus had to have been one that at some point observed this in 
children. He, he watched them. Imagine the man Jesus, our Savior, sitting and watching children and observing how they would act with one another and how they would conduct, in his language, conducted the affairs of their mimic world. They're, they're playing and they're pretending, as our children do, and they're carrying them on with, with a, a seriousness just like the adults all around them who are literally buying and selling and, and providing for themselves. Imagine the man Jesus as he watches these children and is observing how they live and how they act. And and the picture he gives is just imagine this gentle smile that that crosses his face. Perhaps as he, he sees the humor in what they're doing, but also maybe in that moment notices the spiritual picture that he could would then be able to use at some point in his ministry. He goes on, Or look at that scene where Jesus lifted the child upon his knees and fondling it in his arms, sat with it thus in the midst of twelve pretentious, self-important men who had been wrangling as to which of them should be greatest in the kingdom of their dreams. Or that other, where a band of fathers and mothers bring their babes to him for his blessing, and the disciples, as if their master were some stiff, austere, pompous rabbi, bid them and their brats be gone. And, before they can turn away, his voice is raised in mingled displeasure and tenderness to plead the cause of the little ones and claim them as his own. How the sunshine of Christ's tender, large-hearted humanity falls upon this lovely scene. How love beams and smiles upon the visage of the Son of Man. Then... Think of the delight of Jesus in social intercourse. It was this that excited the comment of contemporaries. And it is still one of the surprises of the Gospels to count how often, in the very brief course of his recorded ministry, we read of his presence at some kind of festivity or take, taking part in the friendly intercourse of a social meal. And no feast was ever graced by his presence, but the conversation was all the brighter and the enjoyment all the heartier for it. In his eyes, this world of human society was no unhallowed domain. His vision of God blended sweetly and naturally with social fellowship and homely joys. Everywhere, Jesus appears in the Gospels as a close and keenly interested observer of the human scene. Nothing seemed to escape his eyes. The laborers standing around in the marketplace waiting for a job, the virgins of the wedding party waiting for the bridegroom, the pertinacious litigant and the conscious, conscienceless judge, the shepherd sending for his neighbor to celebrate with him the recovery of his sheep that was lost, the scapegrace in a far country, Think of the multitude of such pictures in the Gospels, pictures that will stand when all the philosophies of the world are dust. And Jesus is not merely an interested or even a kindly and sympathetic spectator of life's busy and various scene. 
he takes his place in it and takes his place in it not with an air of condescending superiority or patient tolerance, but with perfect spontaneity and naturalness, not as one who is brought into accidental contact with it like a visitor from another world, but as one moving in his proper sphere. So that's the picture of Christ in the Gospels. The second heading is its meaning for us. What does this geniality of Jesus mean for us? What does it teach us? First, it rules out asceticism as a Christian ideal. It is impossible to say with certainty on what ground the asceticism of John the Baptist rested, but we do know why Jesus was not or could not be an ascetic. The ascetic ideal may have its origin in despair of the world, as it had in the apocalypticism, which was current in our Lord's time. This world was a mere devil's world, an evil age which could not be mended, but must be ended to make way for the kingdom of heaven. But this pessimistic view was far from being that of Jesus. To him, this world was an imperfect world on which the powers of evil had a terrible grasp, of which the evil one might even be said to be the ruler, yet not so that it was not throughout God's world, with God's hand everywhere upon it, God's presence everywhere in it. Jesus could not be an ascetic from despair of the world. Sometimes, again, asceticism is based on despair of man. Man is so weak and evil that the world becomes to him merely an apparatus of temptations with which he is utterly unable to cope. But while no one has spoken so sternly as Jesus of the necessity that may be laid upon us to be content with less than the full natural enjoyment of the world and for the sake of ultimate salvation accept a life that is temporarily curtailed and maimed, he never holds this up as the ideal. Notice what he just said there. It's very clear when we read the the Gospels and the words of Christ that necessity might be laid upon us to be content with less than the full natural enjoyment of the world. For the sake of ultimate salvation, we may have to accept a life that is curtailed and maimed. Christ was clear about this stuff. It may be true. But he never holds this up as the ideal. He never says this is the only way it can be or the best way it could be. I continue reading. Neither in the life nor the teaching of Jesus is there a trace of this ascetic principle that the physical is the necessary lifelong foe of the spiritual. The world is God's world. And men are God's children for whom this world is made. Jesus, because he was the perfect man, the Son of God, could not be an ascetic, nor could he hold up an ascetic ideal to others. For he came to lift up men to his own plane, to give them that loving consciousness of God which makes all things sacred, that purity to which all things are pure, that potency of spiritual life which converts all things to its own uses. Asceticism would be the idea that we have to go out of the world or or leave it or separate ourselves from it altogether, live in a grass hut by ourselves so that we're not affected by 
the things of the world. Um, Jesus did not do this. He did not teach this. He never set it, it up as the ideal. This was not what he taught. He could not live that way. And he was the perfect man. He goes on to say further, the geniality of Jesus rules out all cynicism. It signifies that Jesus saw in the natural life of human society nothing merely trivial and transit, not a vanity fair, a moving picture show, a tragic comedy of alternate laughter and tears. Many spectators have seen nothing more. But Jesus saw deeper. He saw in all this changing panorama, this procession of work and play, rejoicing and sorrowing, that passes hour by hour across the stage, something great, something that in its coming and passing away leaves eternal traces on men's souls. Yes, and something that not, not only means intensely, but means well. He came eating and drinking, enjoying this human life in all its relationships, but in its nature and purpose, because in its nature and purpose, it is good. What then, let us ask, makes this natural life so really great and good that it is worthy even of Christ's living it and taking a genial delight in it? Let us try to get to the bottom of the matter. Why is it we do not exist as isolated units? Why is our life set in a social framework that we have to work and play, eat and drink, sorrow and rejoice together? What is the meaning, God's meaning? in all that complexity of physical and social relationship which forms the organism of our life here on earth. It means just this, that God is love and that we are God's children made in his image and that only in this social state of existence can we live the divine life of love. That is the meaning of it. Our human world, with all its endless ramifications, has only this one great divine purpose, the increase, the development, the education of love. There never was a more egregious error than that which identifies the, quote, religious life with a state of solitary devotion. Only think, if we lived like Robinson Crusoe on his island, there would be no place for justice, integrity, or honor, None for trust, loyalty, generosity, patience, forgiveness, self-sacrifice. Almost all the qualities and dispositions that make the moral image of God in man would remain dead or dormant, like seeds frozen in ice or buried in desert sands. Yes, our human world is made for the increase of love. You may say that has very often lent itself to the increase of selfishness, antagonism, and hate. That is true, just as one's arterial system is or may circulate bad blood, but it is made for the circulation of good blood. And even so, all the relationships by which we are made members one of another, the ties of kindred, the duties of citizenship, the work of the world, A, its and its play too, its more superficial associations are the natural channels, the veins and arteries through which the divine life must flow and circulate among men on earth. You see what he's saying there? Just because there are evil, it is evil, and our evil uses 
of the things of the world, that doesn't mean that they themselves are evil. The very, uh, to use his language, the very arteries through which all of this evil flow flows are the same arteries or veins through which the divine life has to flow. It's the only outlet through which these things can be manifested on the earth. And so we, we, if we leave them all together, like Robinson Crusoe, then there's, there are no outlets through which these things can flow. He goes on, and observe that this is exactly how Jesus saw human life. Wherever he looked on it, wherever it was, whether it was at the labors, laborers in the vineyard or the servants with their talents or the creditor and his debtors or the prodigal and his father, he found a parable of the divine. And the parables of Jesus are parables not of ingenious fancy, but of insight. He saw the divine analogy there because it is there. Because man is the image of God, and the natural human life, with all its busy activity among transient things, is meant to be filled with the divine, all meant for the growth and discipline of love and of all the graces of character that spring from love as their root. As we grasp this truth, we see in the next place that, as St. Paul says, there is nothing unclean of itself. There is really no, quote, devil's ground. The earth is the Lord's. Not a single thing in it is the devil's. Not a power or appetite of body or mind. No kind of work. No form of healthful pastime. But I'm wrong. There is, quote, devil's ground. Wherever love, the Spirit of God, is not... Wherever instead of it there is self-seeking, self-indulgence, pride, jealousy, or hypocrisy, greed, overreaching, impurity, irreverence, there is, quote, devil's ground. A meeting of presbytery where any of these are is, for the moment, devil's ground. A baseball match without them were angel's ground. Again, notice what he's saying. It's all God's unless men... Remove that which is godly from it. It is strange how in this matter people like to deceive and hoodwink themselves. How even religious people like to palm off deception and humbug upon themselves. It is a saddening thing to any thoughtful man to see how in every age Christian morality tends to become not a thing of spirit and of truth, but of conventions and shibboleths. Remember the, the story of the shibboleth. Have the men say shibboleth. And if a man can't say it properly, that's how you know that he's a pretender. That's a shibboleth. He says certain places and companies, certain forms of amusement are laid under taboo by godly people and originally, perhaps with good reason, they are associated with so much that is evil. But then the avoidance of these comes to be made a badge of religion and Christian morality. They come to represent the deadly sins. And a man may neglect the weightier matters 
He may have a proud, rancorous heart, may be unjust, censorious, unkind, a tail-bearer and backbiter, slippery in business, untrustworthy in private or public life, yet, if he can pronounce the shibboleth right, he takes himself and other like-minded persons take him for a godly man. How is it that there is in human nature this ineradicable tendency to Pharisaism, to put outward things for inward things, unreal things for real, to live by a morality of badges and labels? Because I suppose it is the easiest and cheapest kind of morality there is. Unfortunately, it is also the most worthless. It is alien to the mind of Christ. He set it entirely aside. He rejected all the shibboleths of the good, strict people of his age. He offended their prejudices right and left. He came eating and drinking with publicans and sinners one day, with a Pharisee the next. He labeled nothing as bad, nothing as good. He told men that all the goodness or badness they found in outward things came from themselves. It was not that which goes into a man, but that which comes out of him, from his evil heart that defiles. He told men to trust in God and seek first his kingdom and righteousness, to love God and their neighbor everywhere and always, and all should be well with them. He tells us the same thing today. The third paragraph or heading is entitled, The Need of Discrimination. But on the other side also, there is the constant danger of falsehood masquerading under the guise of truth. People may turn from a narrower to what they think the broader view of the Christian life under a profound mistake. They certainly do so when they think that Christ is an easier master to serve than John the Baptist. Think about what he just said. Everything I just read, you you hear all of that, and there were people who would take that and say, oh, the Christian life just became so much easier. Here I was living under all of this austerity, trying to be like John the Baptist. That's very difficult. Christ comes and uh, lowers the bar. Wow, Christianity just got so much easier for me. He says people do this. They make a profound mistake when they think that Christ is an easier master to serve than John the Baptist. It is no less possible to make mere shibboleths of the assertions of Christian freedom than of the negations of narrowness. When men say in their hearts, I need deny myself nothing and yet be a good Christian. For Christ came eating and drinking. I may go anywhere I please, for every place is holy ground. I may live in and for my business and be absorbed in money-making all the time, yet make it all, quote, holiness unto the Lord. I may devote my life to pleasure and spend all my spare time in the round of amusements and entertainments, for there is nothing wrong in them, and God wishes me to enjoy myself. Such a travesty 
of the geniality of Jesus is only a ghastlier self-deception than the other. Every place is holy, yes, if we take a holy spirit to it. But do we? Now notice he did not say if we take the Holy Spirit, but if we take a Holy Spirit, that would be our own sanctified souls in our approach to and in it. Every place is holy, yes, if we take a Holy Spirit to it, but do we? All business is holy if we do it in faithfulness to God and love to our fellow man, but then do we? And pleasure, too, is holy if it does not degenerate into self-indulgence, but is used for the holy purpose of refreshing body or mind for the serious duties of life. But then, is it so used? Who cannot see that the geniality of Jesus is a far more exacting ideal than the austerity of John? Far easier to eat locusts and wild honey like John than to eat and drink with Jesus Christ. What is it to have the geniality of Jesus? It's to carry on our worldly business and to give our time and our energies heartily to its duties, but to do them in love as the work God has appointed us for the service of our generation. It is to enjoy, thankfully, all that God gives us to enjoy but to enjoy it lovingly and never to let our enjoyment be purchased at the cost, direct or indirect, of pain or harm to others. Never to forget that to stain enjoyment with self-indulgence, idleness, or impurity is to make it devilish and not divine. It is, above all and in short, to have so much love in us, so much of Christ, that we shall be freed from all external and mechanical demands to give up this or that for our own good and for the good of others because such surrender is the very impulse of love. To this we may not immediately attain. To this we need to be helped by the way of self-restriction and self-discipline. And in truth, we dare not face Christ's ideal of life at all. Nothing else than the austerity of John the Baptist would offer us any hope were it not that Christ is Christ, our strength and our Redeemer, who, when he sets the ideal before us, gives also the inward power it demands, who quickens our nature at its spiritual center and creates in us a clean heart. Let us seek, then, to be so deeply Christian that we shall be Christian in all things, and to be so Christian in all things that we shall be more fully Christian at the deep heart of life. Let us seek to make all our relationships and associations of earth, in the home, in business, in the circle of friendship and social intercourse, in work and pastime, in church and state, the channels of love. And we shall be of those for whom Christ's prayer prevails, not that they may be taken out of the world, but that they may be kept from the evil, and not only kept from the evil, but be a leaven, leavening the world for the kingdom of God.